Well, let's turn in our copies of God's Word at this time to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation, the 20th chapter. We'll be reading verses 11 through 15. Let's give careful attention now to God's holy word, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. May the Lord bless this reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking God's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to the passage we read from Revelation chapter 20. As we focus our attention especially upon verses 11 and 12, where John the Apostle says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and Him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, he continues, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. This morning as we look ahead to communion tonight, we have the privilege of studying a topic that is addressed throughout the Word of God and perhaps the most important topic that we could possibly be considering as a church here today. This, in one sense, is the topic that makes so many other topics significant. If it were not for the final judgment, if it were not for the justice and wrath of God against sin, if it were not for eternal rewards and punishments, I think uh, there would be a lot of wind taken out of the sail of the Gospel. Obviously, it's all for the glory of God, but it's this final day of judgment that heightens the significance of virtually everything that we believe because this is it. As they say in sports, it all comes down to this. This is Christianity. Without this, there is no Christianity. Without this, the Bible is a joke and a waste of time. This final judgment is the most significant thing that we could be considering 
this morning. It's supremely relevant for every single person, not just here today in this building, but every person in the world. It's relevant for everybody. It's relevant in a sense for the people that are buried next door, although they're not hearing the sermon. There's really their, their eternal destiny has been sealed one way or the other, but it's still relevant. Their soul is somewhere right now thinking about the final judgment. So if they're thinking about it and their eternity is sealed, how much more should we be thinking about it who are here in the land of the living? We need to be thinking about it. John is writing to us and he's writing in the last book of the Bible. In many ways, the culmination of everything that the Bible teaches is found in the book of Revelation. There's a unique blessing that's given to those who read it and to those who hear it being read. This is an important book that is dealing with an important subject. And you'll notice that it comes at the end of the book of Revelation. Because this is describing the end of history. Everything that God has said or done from in the beginning God all the way through finds its ultimate consummation at this last great day. And it is a great day. It is a significant day. It's a mysterious day. Even the fact that it's called a day which I think tells us it's a particular point in time. But if you think of a 24-hour day, I mean, as some scholars have pointed out, some of the Puritans as well, uh, if, if every individual person's final judgment took but a few seconds, let's say five seconds, then the day of judgment would actually last longer than the universe has existed. Uh, how it all shakes out, I don't know, but I'm just saying it's significant. It's significant. Yes, I do think it'll be more than five seconds or it will be more substantial in terms of its content, but I'm just saying this is a big deal and it's mysterious how and, and, and uh, in what way God will judge every single person that has ever lived on planet earth, but we know that he will and we know that he'll do it on the day of judgment, that particular moment when history ends and the final judgment takes place and thankfully the Bible warns us of this last great day. Imagine if we were full throttle, 90 miles an hour, just heading off the cliff with no idea. Uh, The Bible warns us of this last great day. God warns all mankind through their conscience and specifically He warns us in His Word and He gives us details. He gives us insights. He gives us all that we need to prepare for this final exam, this exit interview, He gives us all that we need. And what a blessing that is. This may not be the most pleasant, feel-good, chicken soup for the soul kind of sermon, but if we're prepared for the final judgment, there'll be all the chicken soup you can eat for eternity. We need to be thinking about this because we need to be ready for the final judgment. John says, verse 11, then I saw a great white throne Every word he uses here is significant. Uh, It's a throne. So it's a place of royal judicial authority. A king serving as a judge would sit on a throne and hear cases and render judgment with his royal scepter. He would exercise the power of the sword that God gives to civil magistrates. The power of judgment. So this is picturing 
the, you know, the, where the judge would be seated with royal, sovereign authority. It's a great throne. It's a massively significant throne. The word great in the Bible does not mean what we say if somebody says, well, how was the pizza last night? Oh, it was great. Or how, how was the, you know, how, how was the ball game? Oh, it was, it was a great game. That's not what, this is saying it's massively significant. Whether it's great in size, whether it's great to behold, it makes everything else look small. It makes everybody feel small in comparison to this great and awesome throne. It's a white throne. Now, obviously, in our culture, that creates, you know, white and black and color revolutions and BLM and all of that. And no, the Bible was actually written by 40 different authors. None of them were white. So this is not some kind of conspiracy racial preference or whatever. Um, the Bible uses both white and black in positive and negative ways. In, you know, God cursed people with leprosy and they turned white. So, so let's try to be mature about this. But it's a great white throne. The Bible speaks in Psalm 45 of Christ's throne being as ivory. And it's a valuable throne. It's a pure and holy and stainless and spotless throne picturing the perfect integrity and justice and righteousness of the one who sits upon the throne. So it's representing the fact that this is the Supreme Court and judgment is always right and true and accurate. You never get a raw deal at this great white throne. Him who sat on it, we're told. Him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. Now later we're told that these uh, people being judged are standing before God, so we know this is a throne of divine justice. It's the creator, it's the lawgiver, it's the designer, it's the sovereign king of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who alone has the sovereign authority to pass judgment. The Bible warns us Though we need to make righteous judgments and discernments in this life, and He's given authority to make judgments and decisions to the family, the church, and the state, nevertheless, we need to be very careful that we do not make judgments before the time and take it upon ourselves to declare people's eternal destinies. It's God Himself who has that sole prerogative and authority He says elsewhere, I kill and I make alive. That's true physically, that's true spiritually. Don't fear man, fear God who has the power to destroy both soul and body in hell. This is God Himself. But notice that John leaves it a little ambiguous. Him who sat on it. So, what are we to envision here? As we'll see this evening, it it is significant for us to understand the role of God in His spiritual essence on the last day. In particular, drying our tears. We'll look at that this evening. But here, I think the Scriptures unanimously declare to us that what we're supposed to envision here is the Lord Jesus Christ as the God-man who has the delegated judicial authority of God as God to sit on this throne. For instance, Matthew 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit 
on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides His sheep from the goats. Jesus describes this arrangement in John chapter 5, verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Paul preaching at the Areopagus in Athens on Mars Hill, Acts 17.31, says that God has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness, so it's divine authority, that's God judging, by the man whom He has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. Another example, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, which is a reference to Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, we persuade men. Paul and the apostles preach the gospel. It's why we evangelize, because we have a sense of the final judgment. We know we're going to give an account for every thought, word, and deed we've ever done. And so, all the more, with fear and trembling, we warn those who are outside of Christ to flee the wrath to come. A similar statement is made in Romans 14, verse 10. But why do you judge your brother? And why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. So you can see it's God, but it's the judgment seat of Christ. Who is it sitting on this throne It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I know I'm referring to these faster than you can can look them up, but you can just listen as I read. 2 Timothy 4.1 Paul says to Timothy, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So God, the triune God, and in particular, the Son of God incarnate who represents that divine authority and holds it and is it on the throne, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom? Him who sat on it. That's Christ. That's Jesus of Nazareth. As one author says, He's more than a carpenter, friends. He's more than a a rabbi. He's more than a teacher sent from God. He is God in the flesh and He will be sitting on that great white throne. In all of His glory and the glory of His heavenly Father, He will be seated there and His eyes are as a flame of fire. And we're told here with some of the most beautiful and frightening language in all the Bible, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here I think it's speaking most particularly of the earth, of the sky, 
and of outer space. But I'm sure if Jesus really wanted to show off His glory, even the third heaven, even you know, the heaven of heavens would, would go hiding behind a tree or something. Um, this is the face of Christ. This is the face that sweat drops of blood. The face of the man hanging on the cross that was mocked, that was scorned. The face that was struck by people who smote Him in the face with their fists and with rods. This is the face of Jesus Christ. We see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the One who sits on the throne. The One who is through whatever I say that happens to be biblical, hopefully some of it this morning, is preaching to you right now. This is the author and finisher of our faith. The One who has inspired the Bible. The Savior, the King, the Prophet, the Priest. Jesus Christ who walked the earth and who has ascended into heaven, His face is so glorious that when He converted the Apostle Paul, the noonday sun was, 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 it just outshone the noonday sun. Noonday sun looked like it was dusk compared to the light of Christ's face. And probably that was nothing compared to what this is describing. He's so glorious and fearful that the universe, as it were, runs and hides. Think of the planets. Think of Jupiter. Think of the sun. Think of the, great, the, the Grand Canyon. Think of the, the highest mountains on planet Earth. Just think of all the things that are so imposing and humbling and, and frightening in this created universe. It all, as it were, just flees away and there's no place found for them. Because at this point, there's no place for any other consideration. All eyes are on Jesus at this point. We don't know how that's going to work with the bazillions of people that will be standing there. But in some way, this great white throne, they're all going to be able to see Him, even those who pierced Him, literally or spiritually. And... There's not going to be any place for anything else. You're not going to be thinking about anything else. You're not going to be distracted by anything else. It's just going to be you and Jesus as He judges the whole earth. And the people who mocked Him, the the atheists, the people that say, oh, blasphemy is a a victimless crime on their bumper sticker, um, those people have wet their pants several times by now. And so recognize this is who Jesus is and this is inevitable and every knee shall bow all of us are going to be there at this moment and John says I saw the dead and of course that's the point all of us are going to be there that's you and that's me the dead we don't think of ourselves that way because at at present we're alive but at that point unless Christ returns in the immediate future but you know, if you look at Revelation 20, there seem to be quite a number of things that have to happen yet. But in any event, um, very likely we will all die and go to heaven or hell in the meantime and await the resurrection at the last day. So when it says, I saw the dead, that's basically everybody throughout history. That's all of us. It is appointed for a man to die once. After that, the judgment And so there's an initial individual judgment that sends you one of two ways in the meantime, but there's a universal final judgment that comes afterward when Christ returns. And 
That's us that's standing there. You need to think of yourself as the dead. You need to think of yourself as someone who will be dead at a certain point. We don't know when. Perhaps very soon, perhaps not for a long time, but death is inevitable for every single one of us. And, you know, there's no time like the present to take a stroll through the cemetery after the service and, uh, and take in the reality of people who were sitting in these pews, maybe even these pews, we've had these for a while, um, real people that lived and breathed and had babies and, and raised their children and, and the dead, that's you, that's me. Are you ready to die? Are you ready to die? If you're unconverted, if you're an unbeliever, if right now you've not surrendered your life to Christ and received His perfect righteousness, which is your only hope of eternal life in standing before God someday, if, you, if that's not you, are you ready to die? Are you ready to have the, you know, that second uh, four-digit year put on the other part of your tombstone? Are you ready to hand in your body of work before the, ju- the judgment seat that's going to judge all your thoughts, words, and deeds? Are you ready to die? The Bible says that if we're Christians, if it is the case that Christ is our life, and we can say with Paul, for me to live is Christ, then, then for us to die is actually gain. We wouldn't want to stay in this miserable, stinking world longer than we have to. We'll serve Christ but we can't wait to go to heaven, even if it's just our souls disembodied in the presence of Christ, waiting that last day of resurrection and then raised up in glory. We desire to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. We don't take it into our own hands, obviously, but uh, we welcome death as a doorway into the presence of our Savior. Are you ready to die? But you know, that's not just a question to ask the unbeliever. And I think in the Bible, more often than not, that is a question, that is a subject that is addressed to the people of God, to true Christians. I understand it's important. You have to repent and believe and be saved. If you don't, you're headed to hell for eternity. If you don't believe in Christ, you'll be cast into the lake of fire with the, you know, the devil and his angels, and it will be horrific for all eternity. There's no doubt about that. And your church membership can't save you. Your baptism can't save you. We as your elders, we're not going to be able to do anything to save you at the last day if you have not trusted in Christ and repented and walked with God as a fruit of salvation. If that's not you, there's nothing we can do. That's why, that's why we preach these things now so that God would use it to wake you up and repent. But this is not primarily addressed to you if you're unconverted. This is primarily addressed to believers. Because, if you recall in the verses that I read, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It's not just the unbeliever. Every Christian will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the deeds done in the body. And it's time we identified the teaching that says otherwise as a false teaching, as as an anti-confessional, unbiblical teaching. 
Paul says, don't judge your Christian brother because both you and he will be giving account to the Lord. We will all give an account for our works before the Lord. I'm not saying we're saved by works, but I'm saying we'll give an account. Dear believer, are you ready to die? Are you ready to hand in the full body of your work in the Christian life? When we stand before God as believers, yes, there'll be an initial judgment in terms of strict justice, a declaration of our sin, but of the fact that Christ has atoned for our sin. There's a judgment according to strict justice. And if we're in Christ, the, the, the charges against us and the guilty verdict will be shown to be satisfied and we will be accepted and acknowledged and acquitted as righteous in the sight of God. Our sin will be brought forth and yet brought forth as pardoned and forgiven. But secondly, Matthew 25 says, once the sheep and the goats are separated, Jesus will bring forth the evidence that the sheep were truly saved and truly converted. In particular, in that passage, he mentions the, uh, the good works of the saints, that they're so humble and ashamed and and uh, you know, convicted of sin, they don't even recognize that they've done these works, but they've been gracious even to the least of Christ's brethren. So there will be a bringing forth of the evidence of the believer's good works to vindicate the justice of God. That's not a second justification. Understand, justification happens when you first believe. It's a once and for all declaration. But there will be a public declaration and vindication of that justification uh, through, as I mentioned, strict justice with the blood of Christ, and secondly, the evidence of conversion. Thirdly, believers will be judged and evaluated in terms of their Christian life, their Christian service. And so that's why in Matthew 25 as well, you have the parable of the talents where there are rewards handed out Gracious rewards, we don't deserve them because God did the work in us anyway, but still, proportional rewards in accordance with our Christian service. 1 Corinthians 3, 9-15 through tells us that if we've built our Christian service on an unbiblical foundation, that much of what would have been our rewards will just burn up and be incinerated by those eyes of, as a flame of fire. Jesus will see right through it as fraudulent and unbiblical, and uh, and w- even if you're you know a, a pastor, an elder, or missionary, or an evangelist, all of the efforts uh, will be seen to have no reward. They'll be burned up, but the person will be saved as through fire. That's not purgatory. That's saying that their good works and their reward will be burned up. So there will be an evaluation of our Christian life. And listen, the reward of heaven is the joy of knowing what God has done in and through us. Enter into the joy of your Lord and Master, it says in the parable. The more we serve God in this life, the more joy we will have organically in heaven from what God did in and through us. And of course, we'll have joy from other people's joy And they'll have joy from other people's joy, and it'll just increase our joy. But there will be a proportion of joy based upon the life that we lived. And here is the rub. The life that you lived 
could end today. And I'm asking you, as a believer, and I have to ask myself as well, are you ready to hand in your full body of work? Who you are as a husband or as a wife or as a child in relation to your parents, for our believing children? Are you ready to hand in that full body of work in terms of your life of godliness, your fight against sin, your repentance, your faith, your study of the Word of God, your evangelistic efforts toward your children and toward other people, your service in the body of Christ, uh, whatever it is, those duties that we were confessing our sins against earlier, are you ready to say, Lord, okay, this is my Christian life. The talents and everything, I'm handing it all in. I'm handing in the assignment, my final exam. Are there some empty questions on your final exam where you, you ha- maybe you're not even a third of the way through the exam? God's called you to do things and you're thinking, well, I'll do them later or at a certain point I'll get serious about studying the Bible one of these days and I'll start praying and I'll start keeping my membership vows and I'll start evangelizing. You know, one of these days I'm going to be this really amazing Christian, well done, good and faithful servant and the whole nine yards. But the thing is, you could die today. And okay, if you're saved through fire, praise God, you're saved. But is, is that, are you content with that? People today, they're not content with their stock portfolio. Oh, that's not doing so well. The market's down. I'm going to fire my advisor because I'm not content with that. I'm not content with my salary. I'm being underappreciated at work. I'm not content with, uh, you know, the, the food my wife makes. I, I've never had that problem. But, you know, we're not content with this or that. We're never content. It's never enough in American society until it comes to spiritual things. And then, well, yeah, you know, I guess, I guess those are the talents that I've, you know, this is, this is my full body of work. I'll hand that in while we go seek things that are going to be equally incinerated on the day of judgment. So, dear believer, especially for you, especially for you, are you ready to die? The Bible says, blessed are those who die in the Lord. Their works follow them. Are you ready? Are you content with the works that are currently going to be following you? And I'm not saying that in a selfish way. Because the reason we do those works is to glorify Jesus Christ because we love Him and we want to honor Him. And when He commends us at the last day, that reflects back on Him because He's the one that did those works through us. Do you love Him enough? Are you, are you discontented with your Christian life so far? Are you willing to take it more seriously? I think, I wonder what my Christian life, what your Christian life would look like if we took this doctrine as seriously as the Bible takes it. I wonder how many sins we would be able to overcome more effectively if we took this doctrine Seriously, I wonder how many duties we would be more zealous and persevering and enduring. I wonder what the church of Jesus Christ would look like if we, like Paul, were willing uh, to keep this doctrine in mind, constantly reminding ourselves of it, such that he says, 2 Timothy 4.7, he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day and not to me only, but also to all who have loved His appearing. What would this nation look like if we believed this doctrine? My friends, this is a powerful doctrine. 
Don't leave it on the shelf. Take it. Think about it. Uh, you know, like a snow globe, just, just shake it around and watch it fall. Think about it. Meditate upon it. We're told that the dead, small and great, came before this throne of judgment. Small and great. That means everybody. From the most significant person, uh, you know, the, as they say, the POTUS, the SCOTUS, you know, the President of the United States, the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, the, the most powerful kings and princes and queens and princesses from all over the world, every nation under heaven, the most powerful, influential, significant, wealthy, billionaire influencers, those people will come before the throne of Jesus Christ. There is none so great as to be exempted from this judgment. But we're told it's also the small, the insignificant, the nobodies, the babies in the womb, everybody. There's none so small as to be overlooked. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that's a reminder to us as parents that every one of our children will appear before that throne of judgment. Every one of our children. Are your children prepared to stand before Christ? Are you preparing them in accordance with their age and so on, uh, with the recognition that God is merciful and they're covenant children and we're so optimistic and God is on our side? But are you, with fear and trembling, willing today to reevaluate? And am I willing to reevaluate what kind of effort am I putting in and have I put in? to the lives of the people God has placed under my charge, in my family? Are your children prepared to stand before? Because you're not going to be there with them to help them. They need to be knowing the Scripture from an early age, which is able to make them wise unto salvation through faith in Christ. Small and great, standing before God. Standing before God. As I mentioned, it's God in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, Matthew 16, 27, that He will come in the glory of the heavenly angels and the glory of His heavenly Father. So it will be in the glory of all three persons of the Trinity that the second person incarnate judges the world from this throne. And He judges us according to our works according to our works. I've already mentioned the case, uh, the, the way in which that takes place. If you're outside of Christ, there's really just one judgment here. It's a judgment of strict justice. And if you're judged by your own works, you're going to be headed for hell because the soul who sins shall die. Even one sin. And, and sadly, apart from God's sovereign grace, saving infants who die in the womb... Uh, they have sinned in their father Adam and there is guilt for that. How much more the sins that we have accumulated throughout our lives. And as I said, for a believer, even if you pass through that judgment through the blood of Christ, you'll still have your sanctified good works brought forth as evidence to confirm that and uh, your service, your Christian service will be evaluated. How does God know our works Well, that's obvious. God is omniscient. God knows all things. That's what that word omniscient means. God has all knowledge and He has it eternally with no sequence of thought so that He's thinking about this 
today and that tomorrow and he forgets and he has to remember but in fact God knows it all eternally in a moment of time all of it as if it were all this eternal present comprehensive knowledge but that is represented here by these record books and there may be record books that are open you know are they scrolls are they books are they ebooks or ipads or computer chip i don't know but um there may be this outward token of God's omniscient knowledge of everything we've ever thought, said, or done. These record books are brought forth as evidence. And again, it makes sense that there would be some kind of actual thing, book or something brought forth here because God is declaring the judgment to us and, and He's bringing evidence to make it clear. People speculate about which books are involved here. They speak of the book of the conscience, Romans 2, where our conscience is brought forth to accuse or excuse us because we've often sinned against what we even know to be the case, what we know to be wrong. We've still done those things. Uh, The book of providence, just outlining everything we've ever thought, said, or done. The book of scripture, which is the standard of God's law to evaluate our works. But however you want to look at it, the books are opened and there's an exhaustive record of everything. Imagine if somebody had a videotape or, I don't know, uh, some kind of YouTube file or whatever it is today, but they, they put it all on the internet, a video of your thoughts for the last year, uh, the secret evil thoughts, you know, evil thoughts toward other people, lustful thoughts. Whatever they, they gave just this, this highlight, low-light reel of all of the things you've only thought, not even including your words and your actions. My friends, with fear and trembling, we need to anticipate uh, this judgment. And the more we think about it and that accountability to God and to the whole world, I think the more we will fear God and keep His commandments. These books are real. This knowledge, this evidence, this record-keeping is real. And this is one of the reasons why Romans chapter 3 tells us that on Judgment Day, the whole world will be held uh, silent. The people who are crying out against God, it's unfair, they'll be silenced. They won't say a word. Uh, The cat will have gotten their tongue, and they will have to confess that Jesus is Lord and that His judgment is just. But thankfully, there's another book There's a book of life. There's a book of life that we're told in Revelation 21, verse 27, uh, includes the names of all those who spend eternity with God in heaven. In other words, His elect. Uh, But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So it's, it's an exact record of every person God chose from the foundation, before the foundation of the world, to save and redeem through Christ the Lamb's book of life, as it's elsewhere called. Now there are some passages that speak of people's names potentially being blotted out of this book. I just want to address that very briefly. In uh, Psalm 69, verse 28, Psalm 69, verse 28, let them be blotted out of the book of the living, book of life, and not be written with the righteous. So even if this is talking about 
the book of life, the elect, understand in that passage with the Hebrew parallelism to be blotted out of the book is parallel with to not be written in it. So it's not saying God elected someone from the foundation of the world and then actually blotted their name out, but to be blotted out is actually to not be written there in the first place. And the reason that language is used is because for all intents and purposes, these people seem to be written there. Paul speaks of members of the visible church, Philippians 4 verse 3, as those whose names are in the book of life. Because they had a credible profession of faith, it's okay to speak that way. But when people fall away, Luke 8 verse 18 says, they lose what they seem to have. They lose what they seem to have. It seemed their name was written in the book of life. And so it it seems that their name has been blotted out from the book of life. And that's what it's referring to at the end of chapter 22 when it says um, that people who add to the Bible will have their part in the book of life taken away. That's what it's saying. What they seem to have. Look that up. Luke 8 verse 18. What they seem to have. So this is the elect. Your name, strictly speaking, can't be uh, unelected or blotted out of this book, this Lamb's book of life. And, and it is knowable. I, wanna, I want us to find encouragement from this. The Bible does not say for the believer, the professing believer, you have no assurance until you find yourself hanging out with the sheep on Jesus' right hand at the last day. When I said at the beginning it all comes down to this, what I don't mean is you can't have assurance of where you're going to be on that day till you actually get there. And so you have to sort of, in a certain way, work your way. No, it's not that at all. You can know for certain right now that your name is in that book of life. You can't ascend into heaven and open it up and page through it. But you can know as if you had. Jesus says in Luke 10 verse 20, Rejoice not that the spirits of the demons are subject to you. Rejoice in this that your names are written in heaven. Hebrews 12 says that the souls, when they die, the souls of believers, they go to heaven, they're around the throne, their names are written in heaven, and Jesus says, even while you're in this life on the earth, like His disciples in the passage, you can know that your name is written in heaven, so much so that you can rejoice in it. 1 John 5.13, He says, I've written these things to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. 2 Peter 1.10 says, Be diligent to make your calling and election sure. Do not discount the importance and the value of assurance. Do not be content to live a mediocre Christian life where your confidence for the last day is mostly presumption, but it's not really grounded in a fresh, ongoing sense. I am a child of God. God loves me. And I want to serve Him. And I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't allow yourself to to be content with anything less than that. Anything less than the spirit of adoption welling up inside of you. I'm not saying it's all feelings. I'm saying to get there, you have to look to Christ. 
You have to look to His promises. You have to look at Him as the Judge and the Savior and understand the fact that knowing Christ is everything because if you know Christ, if you know Him now and He knows you and you speak to Him and you confess your sins to Him and He is real in your life by faith, then the Bible says when you sin, you have an advocate. You stand before the judgment seat of Christ, yes, and earth and heaven are fleeing away, but Jesus is right there with you as your advocate and your judge at the same time. This world would say that's a conflict of interest. That's not fair. The judge can't be the same person as the defense attorney. Well, that's how it works. That's the beauty of the gospel. What an amazing deal. The judge who judges you for all eternity is the same one who loved you and gave himself for you and has lived inside your soul and received your worship and blessed you and provided for you every day of your life. You, you, you can't put a price tag on knowing Christ. But in closing, let me just say as we approach the Lord's Supper this evening, recognize the illusion of secret sin. The illusion of secret sin. There are record books. They will be opened. Sometimes God opens that up during our lives, brings things to light, but sometimes He doesn't. And that last great day is a day in which we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that word appear, it doesn't just mean, okay, all rise for the judge and I'm going to appear. It's the word that means to be exposed to be revealed we will all be shown to be who and what we are i will you will will all appear in an accurate light and i have a list of verses i don't have time to even read but that's what they say you're going to be exposed revealed shown to be in thought word indeed who you really are and so will i be uh, there's no such thing as secret sin it's just temporarily sinful There's no such thing as secret sin. And I think if we took that to heart, just taking one issue, the the, the whole business of internet pornography, uh, men, and I know sometimes women struggle with this, but especially men, understand um, what is done in secret will be exposed in the light. And you have to recognize that. You need to think about this judgment day. You need to think about the face of the one who sits on the throne. You need to think about that book that's going to be opened, and you need to be serious about it because if you're a true Christian, that is going to help you so much to think about this day of judgment, to think about the exposing of your sin, that there's no real secret sin. That is going to help you so much. And Satan wants you to forget. Think about it. Think about it. And as you come to the Lord's table this evening, Be exposed through self-examination. Find those secret sins. Confess those secret sins. Bring them before the light of God's Word and Spirit. Find full and free forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, So many of the things that happen in the church, in society, so many of the things that are ravaging us on a daily basis at so many levels, not even getting into details, are, are... secret sins that are brought to light. And when it involves Christians, you have to think how many sacraments came and went while those things were under the surface happening. How many sacraments came and went, came and went, came and went. 
That can't happen. It can't happen. And I'm saying that like a baseball coach when somebody didn't run out, you know, the ground ball to first base. That cannot happen. It can't happen to me. It can't happen to you. We need to take the opportunity to come to the Lord's table and take it as a great opportunity, as Paul says, to judge ourselves and to confess and unburden and renew covenant with the Lord and accept the consequences and move forward in a godly life. That can't happen. We need to do it. We need to examine ourselves. Because if we judge ourselves, we will not be judged. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise and thank You for being so loving as to speak to us the truth that there is this day of judgment that deep down we've known in our consciences all along. We thank You that we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous. And we pray that You would enable us to put our trust in Him, to believe Him, to believe Him when He speaks of heaven, to believe Him when He speaks of hell, to believe Him when He warns of the judgment, to believe Him when He speaks peace to our soul through the blood of His cross. We ask in His name. Amen.